This is Dr. Michael Brickey with Ageless Lifestyles, cutting-edge thinking for being youthful at every age. On each program, I interview experts on what it takes to live longer, healthier, and happier. Today's show, longitudinal research on health and longevity, tracking people for 80 years. Most studies of health and longevity look for correlations or follow people for several months or a few years. The gold standard for research on health and longevity is to follow people their whole lives. This may seem impossibly expensive and impractical, but it has been done in the United States a few times. Dr. Leslie Martin, co-author of the book, The Longevity Project, carefully studied data on people who were young children in the 1920s and studied them until they died. Some of the results are surprising. Dr. Martin, welcome. Thank you very much. Dr. Martin, what is your secret for being so youthful? Your photo looks like you're in your 20s, but to follow these people over their entire lifespans, you must be more than 100 years old. Yes. Unfortunately, we haven't found the, the fountain of youth in the Longevity Project. So I actually, my trick is that I came in in about 1991 as part of a project that had begun, as you said, in 1921. And we felt very fortunate to have access to this incredible data set. I mean, there, there really isn't another one like it in the world that I'm aware of. And so we've, we've been following the participants since since we began in 1991, and as you said, most of them are now dead, but it's been a, a wonderful opportunity to be able to look from very early in life prospectively at what makes people live a longer and healthier life. So it's been a tag team effort. Tell us about Dr. Lewis Terman and his remarkable study that he started. Yeah, we, we owe a great debt of gratitude to him as well as to all the participants. He began with over 1,500 participants gathered mostly from uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco areas. And he recruited them into the study when they were about 10 years old on average. And his aim was to follow them until they became adults and, and basically see how they turned out. They were all smart kids. And so one thing he was interested in is whether you could see glimmers of, of greatness and predict who would be great leaders and, and do wonderful things in life. He also was interested in dispelling some myths that were floating around about how sometimes smart kids were really sort of maladjusted and likely to be sickly, eggheadish sort of creatures. And he was actually, though, so involved and engaged in the process of the study that even once these kids grew up and were adults and he had sort of completed his initial aim, he continued the study and, and he kept doing it until he died. Others then picked it up. And so these people were followed very consistently. Every five and a couple of cases, there was about a 10-year gap. But over their lifespans, sometimes they were reporting. In fact, very often they were reporting about themselves. But we also have data from parents and teachers and spouses. So it's very comprehensive. The comprehensiveness of it is absolutely amazing. Mind-boggling. It really is. And to show how it continues to be a very thorough study, one of the fascinating things that you did was you didn't just settle for what death certificates said. You went out and tracked down what the actual cause of death was. 
Yes, we did. So in some cases, we couldn't get death certificates. And so the Longevity Project had as part of its goal to try to figure out from reports that we did have what exactly was going on. And then when we did have death certificates, which we often were able to get with a lot of effort, we had a nosologist actually go in and code those and look at primary and secondary causes of death, which could serve as very useful indicators of life paths and, and what sort of, you know, were the risk factors for various sorts of people. Martin Seligman, one of the most prominent psychologists in his book, for example, Learn Optimism, cites dozens and dozens of studies that suggest that optimistic people live longer, healthier, happier lives. But your study, tracking people over time, doesn't necessarily agree. That's true. You mentioned at the very beginning that the sort of gold standard is this lifetime sort of approach, this longitudinal design. And we did find that sometimes what is true in the shorter term doesn't hold true over the lifespan. And this was one of those cases where we were very surprised ourselves by the findings of the Longevity Project. What we see is that when you when you do look in the short term, and particularly when people are facing crises, maybe they're ill or they've had a surgery or something like that. And many of the studies that, that are out there, which are very well done studies, but they often do deal with those sorts of populations, people who are challenged in some way. When that's the case, it seems pretty clear that being optimistic is a benefit. If you have a belief that things can get better, that things will turn out okay, you're more likely to stay engaged in the process of doing whatever it is that you need to do to help get yourself through this crisis or through this problem. But as a lifespan approach, when every day of your life, every decision you encounter, you have this sort of optimistic bias and you feel that, you know, things will turn out all right and everything's going to be just fine, it changes the way you evaluate risks and it changes the the way you behave. And although sometimes that's not so consequential, over time, all of these little risks do add up. And we saw a pretty dramatic difference between the, the most cheerful, optimistic kids and their more serious counterparts. And, and the, more, the more cheerful, optimistic kids were at higher risk of early mortality. So part of it was they were more likely to take risks, just like when you're young, you feel you're invulnerable. <laughs> and part of it is that they didn't take problems as seriously, maybe were less likely to go to a doctor if they were, were ill. Yeah, so we saw that the, the kids who were more cheerful and optimistic did grow up to smoke more, drink more, they took more risks, they had more risky hobbies and those kinds of things. But you're also correct that they were the kind of happy-go-lucky kids. We found that a moderate amount of worrying, particularly for men, was actually beneficial. Having some anxiety and, and a little bit of trepidation seemed protective and and seemed to help them take care of their health better than they would if they didn't have that anxiety or that worry. And you were talking a few minutes ago about how different times in your life call for different things. And one of the times when that was very pronounced was when a man became a, a widower. If he was a worry wart, that was very helpful to him at the time. <laughs> Yeah, it was. And th this was also something that came as quite a surprise to us. 
being high on what we refer to as neuroticism, which doesn't mean neurotic in a clinical sense, but someone who does worry and is is anxious and, and maybe a little high strung and, and, you know, a little more moody, that actually is not something that we strive to be. We think of that as a sort of a, a negative quality or characteristic. But the longevity project showed that when you were facing a crisis like widowhood and you were a man, this actually, having this quality, decreased your risk by about 50% of dying within the next few years. So these seem to be the men who, by virtue of their worrying nature, kind of stepped in and did things that we often credit the wives with doing, you know, remembering to go to the doctor, remembering to, you know, take care of your health in various ways. And so it really was quite beneficial and protective to them in that particular situation. But being a warrior when you were a uh, a woman losing a spouse wasn't particularly helpful? Yes, it really wasn't. It, it was interesting. We found oftentimes that there were sex differences. You know, what was true for one sex was not always true for the other. And this was one of those cases that it didn't benefit women to, to be warriors or to be higher on neuroticism. Back when you were talking about the optimist, it sounded like extroverts as well. Was there a, a lot of congruence between who was an extrovert and who was an optimist? You know, there there really was not a high correlation between the two of those, and we were interested in sociability because that is another characteristic or quality that we think of as being beneficial and a good thing, and, you know, we sort of tend to worry about kids who seem a little more introverted or withdrawn. We're worried that they won't have enough friends and that kind of thing. But interestingly, we found that being more extroverted and social, um, it, it wasn't harmful, but it wasn't particularly helpful either. It really didn't seem to matter very much. We found that having social ties was important, but having social ties and having contact with people wasn't always directly correlated with being a very sociable person. So what I mean by that is that you could have, you know, just a few close friendships or some family relationships, but you didn't have to have a whole lot. You didn't have to be a social butterfly if that wasn't you. But having those connections, having those interactions with others was something that very consistently came through in the Longevity Project as being quite helpful to both men and women. Mm -hmm. And the single biggest factor that you found was conscientiousness. Can you tell us about that? Yes. When we first started doing the Longevity Project and we were interested in finding out what personality characteristics might be related across the decades to lifespan and, and mortality risk. So we looked at a number of different ones, and conscientiousness was by far the strongest and most consistent predictor of a longer life. People who are high on conscientiousness are responsible, and they're organized, they're prudent, they think ahead, they're not impulsive. And so this constellation of, of qualities and characteristics really typified those who followed pathways in life that were generally pretty stable. They they had stable jobs. They didn't have a lot of surprises. But at the same time, they didn't have boring lives. They oftentimes, because they were conscientious, had great job opportunities and, and were selected for, you know, very interesting things to do. So they didn't lead boring, dull lives. But they did lead lives that were in many ways somewhat predictable. And this seemed to bode well for them. And if I understood the concept correctly, part of it seemed to be 
not taking undue risks, and part of it seemed to be persistence and going about things methodically. Yeah, that is is very true. So we saw that you know some of the risk taking behaviors, you know, and smoking and drinking, some of those health related behaviors were you saw better health behaviors in the more conscientious individuals. But you're also very correct that the individuals higher on conscientiousness are those who do uh, finish what they start. They do sort of go along and persist in trying to achieve their goals. And that seemed quite important. These people tended to feel satisfaction in what they accomplished. They felt that they were living up to their potential. They, they found meaning in what they did. And this really seemed to benefit them. So this gave them a sense of purpose, which to me anyway is, is a, a real key to, to mental health. Yeah, I, I think that would be accurate to say that, that they found purpose in, in what they did. Oftentimes, you know, it was their careers, but, you know, they tended to gravitate towards stable relationships with other people. And, and so they, they found meaning in a lot of different things in their lives, both socially and more occupation or work related. One of the surprises was while being socially connected was important, you compared scientists uh, versus business and salespeople and kind of tweaked the data. Yeah, this was, this was part of what we were interested in with the sociability factor. And Lewis Terman and his colleagues had actually done some classifications ahead of time of different occupational categories and things like that. And so we followed up using his categorizations and looked at, you know, what, what characterized and typified scientists versus some of these other categories. And we saw that although the scientists did tend to be lower on sociability, they had a lot of stability in their jobs. They had a lot of job satisfaction. And oftentimes, they managed to avoid jobs that placed you at risk. So you could sort of envision uh, an individual who, you know, has a lot of high-powered meetings but often is in, you know, smoky restaurants and bars and having to do quite a bit of drinking and schmoozing. And so we saw a different sort of pattern among the scientists that really – beat out any benefits that that the other groups may have been having by virtue of being more sociable and interactive. And and in my particular anti-aging interest, one of the ways I see that is take a sport like jogging. To me, that's not a healthy sport in that it's you're going to need knee replacements at at 50. Uh, I don't want people headbutting a soccer ball and, you know, a lot of sports you have to be very careful with. Yeah, you're you're absolutely correct, and that brings us to another uh, finding that we had that I think a lot of people have been really pleased with. We looked at physical activity across the lifespan and found that, certainly, no surprise, physical activity is important. It's good for you. But you don't have to be doing the rigorous exercise. You don't have to do X number of sit-ups and push-ups a week. You don't have to log a certain number of miles. If, if you hate jogging, you probably shouldn't be doing it. And, and you're right. There are risks associated with some of these different sports activities. What was important was the consistency with which people did physical activity. So it's important to get up out of your chair. It's important to keep moving. But it doesn't so 
much matter what you're doing. So if you if you like gardening, if you like walking or hiking or canoeing or dancing, whatever it is that you enjoy doing, that's what you're going to tend to do consistently. And that's what we saw in the participants of the Longevity Project, that, that they did what they liked. And very few of them did anything that, that would be even close to what we might call a, a formal exercise program. They didn't do that. They did other kinds of things. And when they did those consistently, we saw a real benefit to their health. Some of the descriptions of centenarians have emphasized that they're very active people. Did the people who lived longer in the longevity study seem to be more active, or is that just a term that wasn't looked at or used? Well, they weren't asked specifically about how active they were, except in the very later years when, well, they most of them were not, they weren't centenarians yet, but they were quite a bit older. But regularly throughout their lives, they reported on the kinds of leisure activities they did. So we were able to calculate approximate levels of activity through the decades for the participants. And we did find that those who lived longer did tend to stay active over the years. Sometimes their activities did change. So, you know, you might have really enjoyed baseball or you might have done a lot of skiing at one age and then you changed to something else, woodworking or something as you got older. But those who live long did tend to remain active and not only physically active, but they also remained mentally active. They often, you know, continued working. They were actively involved in their communities, whether that be a church community or, or some other sort of group. They were involved with families. So they, they really did maintain an active lifestyle. One of the surprising results is that intuitively we would think that cheerful people would be healthier and happier and, and live longer, but you question that. Yes. So when we looked at kids who were, you know, very cheerful and optimistic, we did see that, that for those who were high on that, there there could be a, a real risk. And, and that seemed to come largely, as I was saying before, through their, how they evaluated risks and how, how prepared they were for, you know, the negative things that inevitably do happen in life. Other times we did see that contentment and happiness and a sense of satisfaction with one's own life did tend to go along with good health. And I think that's a pretty typical pattern that's often found. What the Longevity Project really helped to highlight, though, is that thinking happy thoughts, you know, being cheerful isn't driving the good health. Oftentimes, good health and uh, happiness go together because they're both related to other things that you're doing, things that both promote happiness and promote a longer life or, or better better health. I think it's very bad advice to think that, you know, you can, you can you know, watch funny movies and laugh your way to better health or you can simply think happy thoughts and, and improve your health that way. What seems much more effective based on the data in the Longevity Project is that you get engaged and involved in things in your life that are enriching and rewarding and that bring happiness and satisfaction. And by doing those kinds of things, but engaging at a deep level, not a superficial level, you probably will also be benefiting your health over the long term, but not not by doing something simple like thinking happy thoughts. One of the trickiest things that you wrestled with was what's cause and what's effect. For example, you said it's not that depression causes bad health and, and a shorter lifespan, 
but it's the other way around. And I gather that if there was one factor you saw as the biggest causal factor, it's the conscientiousness. How do you tease out cause and effect? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing to do, and we don't do it perfectly, certainly, even in the longevity project. But one of the real benefits of a longitudinal study like this is that we can look over time and watch as behaviors and habits and, and things like that develop, knowing an initial starting point on something like a personality variable, for example. We also have to recognize, though, that human lives are, are very complex. And so I think that it would it would be erroneous to think that we, we can identify simple causal pathways. Every time we, we identify, you know, a good predictor of some some outcome, we have to recognize that it's it's not a perfect predictor and it's working in conjunction with multiple other factors. And so to draw simple conclusions and say, okay, you know, you can do this and you can do that and sort of build a, a perfect outcome for yourself is not correct. I think that by doing the longevity project, one of the things that we really found is that there are multiple pathways to good health. Some of the surprising things that we found are things that are going to be a big relief to some people. Something that you may have worried about or always been told, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, that's, that's bad for your health, that's going to cut your lifespan short. In some cases, we're finding that that's not always the case. Sometimes those are actually things that are good or at least good in certain situations or for certain kinds of people. So recognizing the complexity and recognizing that cause and effect work together and a cause may also be tied into other effects, it's important to keep in mind and, and always remember that, that level of complexity. And have a healthy skepticism when you're reading the general literature. Well, it's very true. Yeah, and I, and I think a, a healthy skepticism in, in your own research as well. We, we constantly went back and, and, you know, re-looked at the data in, in various ways. We, we used some very statistical modeling techniques that are, are quite sophisticated. And we also did some very simple kinds of tabular things that, you know, anyone could do. And we always wanted to look and make sure that we were examining the data from every possible angle and really getting a good feel for what it was telling us. Different different approaches and techniques for data analysis each have their own weaknesses and their own strengths. So by combining them, uh, we were able to get, I think, a much clearer picture of what, what was really going on, what we could confirm and, and really rely on as being good and which things are a little bit more tenuous. We also look all the time at research coming out of other people's laboratories. It's very important to have that kind of confirmation. The Longevity Project is unique in that it covers more than 80 years, and it's, you know, it's a fabulous data set, but it's got its own weaknesses, too. So we, we need to see confirmation from other labs and other, other data that have weaknesses that we don't have, but strengths that we don't have as well. Yeah, I was just going to uh, compliment you on how it, it's a fabulous study if if that's all you did was look at the data, but you tied it in so nicely with other research. And many times when there were questions, particularly questions about, well, is this dated? Has society changed so that this pattern is no longer the case? You set a research team out to study it and see whether it's still the case or not. 
Yeah, we, we did, and I think that's so important to do because by definition, you know, if you do a study like this, by the time you get to the end and you find out, you know, the, the real answers that you wanted, they, they are somewhat dated. I mean, you are relying on information that was collected decades ago. So it's very important to do that contemporary validation so that you know, yes, we're talking about a construct that is understood and, and talked about the same way today as it was back in the 20s. Some of, some of the, the social milieu has changed over the decades, and so it's important to look at that and, and see what other more contemporary studies are showing about the same kinds of things we're looking at and see whether what they're finding is consistent with what we found. And every time that we're able to demonstrate that that is the case, we have even more confidence in the findings of the Longevity Project. We're talking with Dr. Leslie Martin, who's a psychology professor at La Sierra University in Riverside, California. She, along with Dr. Howard Friedman, is co-author of The Longevity Project, Surprising Discoveries for Health and Long Life from the Landmark Eight-Decade Study. The book just came out a few months ago, and the website is Howard S. S is in Sam Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. So what would we find at HowardSFriedman.com? Well, we actually have a lot of information uh, about the study and the book there. You can read a part of the book that's, that's posted there. There are links to um, other sorts of information. There is a sample quiz there. We have quizzes in most of the chapters so that people can sort of figure out where they are on, on particular personality dimensions or social dimensions and, you know, think about what that means in terms of making changes for their health. And there's some information about us and our background and our credentials all kinds of stuff. On the one hand, this book really is the gold standard for psychological research about personality and, and health and, and longevity. At the same time, it's a very readable for a layperson. So you did a, a beautiful job of speaking both to professionals and to laypeople. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. We, you know, it's, it's based on 20 years of scientific studies that, that we've published in, in the peer-reviewed literature. And of course, all the references to those articles are in the book for those that are interested and want that more technical kind of detail. But we recognize that for a lot of people, that's not interesting reading. It's not as accessible. They're tucked away in libraries and things. And so we really did have as our aim making this something that the average person could read and gain something from and enjoy as well. So I'm, I'm glad that it is accomplishing that. And while you and Dr. Friedman were the, the leaders of this, dozens and dozens of graduate students and dissertations were also built around the project even in the last 10 years or so, and the research continues. Absolutely. And and even at this point, we're not completely done. You'd think after 20 years, we would have wrapped it up already. <laughs> but there, there are still a few things, particularly in later life, um, having to do with, you know, good cognitive functioning later in life and healthy aging that we're, we're still exploring in more detail. To get at some of the interesting miscellaneous things, you talked about catastrophizers. Why were they important? We were talking a little while ago about the fact that uh, a moderate amount of anxiety and worry can actually be beneficial in some cases. 
And this is sort of the extreme of that. Catastrophizers were quite harmful. Individuals who sort of fell into this trap of viewing things as the worst possible scenario really placed themselves at risk. And this is one case where the death certificates themselves became quite important. So we we always look at what it is people are dying of. You know, is it cardiovascular disease? Is it cancer? What is it? As a way of, of trying to figure out and work backwards and, and see the pathway a bit more clearly. And in many cases, we find that the things we're looking at predict to all cause mortality. So people are, are more likely to die of, of various causes, not any particular cause. And that was true of the catastrophizers too, but we did see a pronounced increase in deaths due to accidents and injuries. And this included suicides as well. So what this what this indicated was that we needed to look in more detail at how how people were dealing with these things they saw as catastrophes, and clearly they weren't adjusting to those well. We also know from looking at the death certificates that not not every suicide is listed as a suicide, and so we think it's quite possible that some of the accidents and, and injurious deaths may have in fact been suicides that simply were not documented as such. And without your prodding that you did on death certificates, you probably would have missed a lot of the suicides that you did catch. Absolutely. I think we would have, well, we would have missed all of them with a few exceptions that were mentioned in the reports of of family members. I I picture Aristotle smiling on this study and saying, huh, all things in moderation, you know, don't be too optimistic and don't be too much of a worrywart and... Well, I, I think that's not a bad take-home message. We we did find that as long as you're not overdoing things and being excessively anything, um, you're you're probably gonna gonna be okay. And moderation does seem to be a a good sort of rule of thumb to follow. And one of the things interesting about the subject is, is some of the the controversies that people argue about and get all excited about. There's some answers here, like breastfeeding. Yeah, I, certainly we know about some, you know, short-term things that are good for kids who are breastfed, but but when we looked across the lifespan, it it wasn't a big deal. You know, if, if you can breastfeed, that's great. You know, it's probably a great bonding experience for for the mother and child, but you know, you're not doing long-term damage if if you can't. And so I I do think it it illustrates how we can get very fixated on particular do's and don'ts and and we often have very rigid ideas about things that absolutely must happen if we're going to set a, a child on, on the right pathway. And and sometimes it doesn't really matter, and sometimes we're actually wrong. This makes me think of another thing that we looked at, which was we get a question very often from, you know, young parents. You know, they want to do the best thing for their kids, and so they really struggle over, you know, how and when they ought to school them and when should they start them. They want to give them that head start. And the Longevity Project found that you could actually, you know, be excessive there too. Again, moderation. Kids who started formal schooling too early, and by too early we mean before age five, and these were smart kids, so there were a number of them in in the study who did start at that young age. But that actually placed them at risk for earlier mortality. 
whereas those who started on time, they had no no such risk. And, and it wasn't a matter of skipping ahead either, because we looked at those who started on time, but then skipped a grade or two. So, you know, as they moved along, they were out of sync age-wise with their peers. That wasn't a problem. It was the early start that was potentially detrimental. And we're talking about an accelerated kind of push. We're not talking about the makeup that goes with a program like Head Start, where we're trying to make up for some cultural disadvantages right. and lack of stimulation. Yeah, and that's a very important point. So we were talking, you know, a, a structured, formal school setting. And, and it makes sense, although we don't have data specifically on this from the Longevity Project, but it, it is consistent with other things that have come from, from other research laboratories. And that has to do with, you know, the importance that we now recognize as psychologists for, you know, brain development adjustment, for, for young kids to have free playtime that's unstructured, they can explore, they can, you know, do this in a sort of relaxed, unstructured environment. And so we imagine that that's probably part of what's going on. And then, you know, if you're the youngest kid in, in your class early on and, and probably the smallest, you may have additional pressures to try to, you know, prove yourself and, and live up to something and be like everyone else, and, and that may also be harmful. So they need cardboard boxes and playing outdoors is <laughs> probably more <laughs> yes, than computers. Those are the best toys. <laughs> One of the things that surprised me was you said better education is an indicator of persistence but not a cause of greater longevity. And I would have thought that better education would make people more aware of resources and consequently uh, improve their coping skills. I think this is one case where the Longevity Project, its uniqueness is maybe not such a benefit, although it, you know, it's, it's always a double-edged sword. So we, we did find, even in the Longevity Project, that there was quite a, a wide array of, of educational attainment. So despite the fact that these were all quite smart individuals, some went on to postgraduate work and, and some stopped at, at high school, for example. And what we found is that having more education did improve your life expectancy, but just by a very little bit. There were so many other things that were, were much more important. But I do think that because these were all smart people, they were resourceful, they were middle class for the most part. Terman, Lewis Terman didn't really make any effort to increase the diversity of his sample. That makes the question a little bit different. So I think that when when you have a more diverse group where the potential for changing people's lives may vary more and, and be more tightly linked to education, you may actually see uh, a bit bigger effect than what we saw in the Longevity Project associated with, with education. At the same time, you know, the, the strength of the personality characteristics, particularly conscientiousness, the, the power of some of the psychosocial experiences like the, the divorce of one's parents, those are things that we would not expect to see differ across ethnic groups, across, you know, different categories of people. And so in those cases, we would not expect to see any real differences if the sample were more diverse. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that is borne out by the research findings of other laboratories that have much more diverse samples. 
Interesting. One of the most fascinating findings was about parental divorce. Yeah, that that one is one that I think is maybe, well, I, I was going to say not surprising because we, we recognize that divorce is really hard on kids and there are, are many studies that document the kinds of adjustment problems and greater propensity for, for drug and alcohol use and abuse and um, promiscuity and, and all kinds of things that we know are correlated with the experience of parental divorce even today. But but I don't want to say that because I think it still is surprising that it affected lifespan. Kids whose parents divorced were at an increased mortality risk. And part of the reason for this seemed to be that they, in fact, were at greater risk of having their own marriages end in divorce. Uh, so in some sense, they re- were more likely to repeat the pattern that they had seen in their own homes. And the experience of one's own divorce was also a, a clear risk factor. Well, what particularly surprised me was some male-female differences and how closely they were bonded with the parents often had surprising results. Yeah, that was really fascinating to, to see this sex difference play out. So there, there have been a lot of studies that have looked at, you know, the protective effect of marriage. And in fact, this gets picked up pretty frequently by the media. And so you see, you know, the pop advice, oh, you want to live longer, you know, you want to be healthier, get married. And I, I've seen that many times, especially in women's magazines. What's interesting is that when you look at males and females separately, and, and this is true in these other studies as well, and, and we found this in the Longevity Project, that divorce is a bigger risk factor for men than it is for women, quite substantially so, actually. Men can mitigate that risk by getting remarried following divorce. And it was really interesting. We saw that this really wasn't so much the case for women. Women were about as well off if they stayed single following divorce as they were if they got remarried. And that, I think, was was very telling. And, and when we looked at the social ties that men and women had, this, this does seem to be part of the explanation. Men, on average, rely more heavily on their wives as as a confidant, as you know, the social planner. So she is a, typically a very important part of his social network and keeping him connected to others, as well as serving as you know someone he can talk to about deep issues. And and oftentimes she is the only one he can talk to in that way. Women, on the other hand, tend to have uh, more extensive social networks, so they're more likely, on average, to have other friends, typically girlfriends, that they can talk to about deep issues, and you know they've got others to rely on and, and call on and share with. And so, if they lose their husband through divorce, it's it's not that it doesn't have an impact, but the impact isn't the same. They they still maintain the rest of those social ties and connections that can help them through this painful time. Men are less likely to have that resource. It was fascinating that in marriages it was far more important how happy the husband was than how happy the wives were. That was, and that's one that's still a bit of a puzzle. (laughs) But yeah, we looked at marital happiness for, and this was really interesting because Terman 
you know, in, in his typical fashion, he wanted to collect as much data as he could. And so he not only collected data on marital satisfaction from the participants, but he also got their spouses involved. And so we had data on both. And we were able to look at, and, and of course, the first thing we looked at was marital satisfaction as a whole and found that, yes, that was that was good for your health. But then when we broke it down a little bit and started to look at, at different categories, we saw that it really was the the man's happiness, the husband's happiness that was most important to his own health. And interestingly, it was his it was most important to his wife's health as well. And the wife's happiness wasn't particularly important either to her own health or to her husband's health. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, and can't quite explain that one, but we're working <laughs> on it. <laughs> Another sex difference was on religion. Yes, we were interested in the role religion might play in a healthy and a long life. And, you know, certainly there are some aspects of that that are just not open to scientific inquiry. But we were able to look at how religiously inclined people were and, you know, how much they enjoyed reading the Bible or other religious texts and, and how frequently they went to religious services and those kinds of things. And we found that being higher on religiosity actually was protective, but as you said, particularly for women. And it was interesting, though, as we looked in more detail, you know, what was it about being religious that was helpful? We saw that the, the biggest factor really was the social connectedness. So individuals who who went to church more frequently and who, who were engaged in their religious communities had more connections to other people. We also saw that not only were was the number of connections important and the frequency with which people interacted with others, but on top of that benefit, if if you were engaged in doing things for other people, things that benefited others, helping others, that was an added bonus on top of the benefit that you already had by virtue of the social connections themselves. And that is often characteristic of religious communities. They often have as their mission helping others, doing for others, you know, feeding the hungry, helping the sick. And so that also seems to be part of what's going on. Religiosity and, and being more religiously oriented benefits you in large part because it fosters your engagement with your community. We did see that for individuals who weren't so religiously inclined, but who were active in, in their communities and they were doing for others, and so they were replicating the, the social connectedness and the, the social engagement that often went along with religious involvement, they had the same kinds of benefits. They also were, were living longer lives and, and, and reaping that, that positive effect. I believe you said that the key here is the social connection and the altruism, not how many hours you pray or how many Bible verses you read. Is that exactly. true? And, and how did you figure that out? Well, we had indications from these individuals of, you know, how, how they spent their time, what worship was to them, you know, if, if they enjoyed reading religious texts and those kinds of things. So we were able to look at individual factors, you know, which, which pieces of your overall religious life are, are effectively predicting how long you'll live and which are not 
part of that picture. So even though these things may all go together and may be correlated, the correlations aren't, you know, terribly strong. And so they're clearly each contributing their own independent aspects to this overall religiosity. So when we parse it out and, and break it down into its component parts, we're able then to look at the relative strengths of, of the individual components. Um, in terms of the social connectedness, we I mentioned already the, the number of interactions that you have with other people and this doing for others element. But there was another aspect of social support, if you will, that we were also able to look at, and that was people's feeling that they had others they could call on and that people cared about them and, and that kind of thing. And that was the least important of the social elements. So more important was actually interacting with people and doing things for others. It wasn't as important that you felt that you had people to interact with. Another one of those that's contrary to what you would normally think. Yeah, exactly. I guess it's kind of like, you know, the the doing or the action is is more important than the feeling in this particular case. You see articles on television or read articles about how a prisoner got a pet and just brought him out or a, a person in a nursing home got a pet and it brought him back to life. But you didn't find much support for pets. Yeah, this isn't one of my favorite findings for the <laughs> project. I'm a pet lover. Um, my dog's here in my office with me right now. He is every day. And and certainly there are always exceptions. There, you know, there are anecdotes of, you know, pets who really did make a difference in the lifespan of, of their owner. But while I think it's pretty clear that, that pets can improve the quality of your life, they can bring a lot of enjoyment, we did find that the frequency of playing with pets and interacting with pets wasn't important in terms of, of lifespan. So it certainly didn't hurt you, but it also didn't help you. And, and we looked at this sort of in conjunction with the, the social support and the social connections because I often hear people say, oh, well, you know, grandma's lonely. We should get her a dog or something. And, and I think <laughs> if grandma likes dogs, that's an awesome idea. But if grandma doesn't, Eh, don't don't torture her with getting her a dog because it's pretty clear that that pets are not a substitute for human connections. So if you like them and enjoy them, that's great. But they're they're not going to do the same kind of thing for your lifespan that staying engaged with family and and friends and coworkers and church communities and things like that will be able to do. I wonder, just like we found that the. Male worry warts who lost a spouse, that that was helpful in that particular phase of life, that there may be some little uh, pockets of times when pets may have this effect, but the overall effect is uh, pretty neutral. Yeah, and I, I think that's actually a really excellent point. We know that there are lots of, of great studies that show the positive effects of optimism when you're facing a crisis, you know, in, in certain situations, but over the lifespan, you know, you can have too much of it. And I think you're absolutely right. The same thing may be true here. Over the lifespan, you know, having pets doesn't really matter, but there may be certain times when it really it really is a benefit. I want to back up to kind of a bigger picture of longevity research. This is probably the biggest, most elaborate study. How does it 
fit in with George Viant's study with the Harvard freshmen and other longevity studies? Each of these studies, I think, can contribute pieces that the other studies may have missed or, or weren't able to look at for various reasons. And as we see patterns and themes and consistencies emerging, that gives us a better and better picture of overall what we can can rely on and view as a likely truth. And they also enable us to narrow down possibilities and you know, given that there's limited funding to do this kind of research and, you know, you can't do it all, having findings and being very careful to look at the work of others can tell you, you know, maybe this path isn't the most likely path, so, you know, if we can't do it all, we'll skip that path or we won't look at that right now so that we can make the most efficient use of our research dollars and and gain as much knowledge as possible from the studies that we do conduct. You know, as we're talking about this, part of my brain is saying, gee, we may never see studies like this again. And then the other part of my brain is saying, gee, with the new technology we have and it's so much easier to collect and code data and crunch it that we may see studies that are equally ambitious. Yeah, I think in this sense I'm I'm kind of an optimist, not too much of an optimist, but a moderate optimist. And and I do think that with you know the kinds of technologies we have available today and and the ways in which people can report things back in in real time or or something very close to it, the fact that you can get physiological data so much more easily now, it's it's still not always simple, but easier than it used to be. And and that's one gap in the longevity project. We don't have a lot of physiological data, biomedical sorts of information. We have self reports on health and you know, illnesses and injuries that people had, but many of the studies now are collecting much more sophisticated sorts of physiological data that are just absolutely wonderful. We are collaborating with Sarah Hampson of the Hawaii Longitudinal Study, which is, you know, quite a long-term study by this point. doesn't have all of the elements that the Longevity Project has, but has much better diversity and has some good data on things that we are missing in the Longevity Project. So that's a very exciting collaboration where we can start to fit together pieces, use some things from the Longevity Project to develop hypotheses and, you know, see how those play out in the Hawaii data set. And it's it's really crucial, I think, to continue doing those kinds of collaborations and to sort of cobble together from the information that comes out of all of these different studies, clearer picture of what's going on overall. It's wonderful to end on such an optimistic note. We're talking with Dr. Leslie Martin, who's a professor at La Sierra University, and along with Dr. Howard Freeman, co-author of The Longevity Project. The website, again, is Howard S., as in Sam, Friedman, of course, all one word, dot com. And I just think this is one of the most important books of the decade. The quality of longitudinal research is just so much more valuable than the usual studies, and this is just superbly done. Well, thank you so much, and and we really hope that that this book starts some conversations that 
it's not going to fix things immediately. It's not going to change, you know, public policy right away. But we do hope that having a richer understanding of how all these different pieces fit together over many decades, that that might help us start thinking about how we can more effectively do things to help improve quality of life and length of life and maybe without always needing to rely on, you know, the most sophisticated technology and the most expensive kinds of things and, and focusing in on some of the maybe more basic and simple and, and economical sorts of elements, you know, things like family and work and, you know, those kinds of things, but they're they're quite important. And so I hope that this book, The Longevity Project, is helpful in contributing to that discussion. And it's okay to to be a little average, a little dull. <laughs> you don't have to go to the uh, jump up and down workshops and uh, uh, you don't. do if mantras. You like them, and... do them. But if not, yeah, skip it. <laughs> I had uh, I was talking to the speech therapist today, and she said that she just got back from a, a Buddhist retreat where they didn't speak uh, the whole weekend. She said it was really, really, really hard for me because uh, my friends told me I need to go because I talk too much. And I said, "That's absurd! You don't talk too much. Why torture yourself?" Yeah, I, that I'm sure it's meant to be refreshing and relaxing, but and it probably is for some people. But I, I think I would be in in her camp, and it would drive me nuts. Dr. Martin, thank you so much, and again, I love the book. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I, I really enjoyed discussing it with you. Commentary. I'm sure you gathered. I see this 80-year study as one of the most important in psychology. First. Lifelong longitudinal research is very rare. Second, from the beginning of the study, the quality and comprehensiveness of the data was extraordinary. It not only used data from the individuals, but also data from teachers, families, and even death certificates. While cause and effect are difficult to separate, longitudinal research gives us a much better opportunity to discern what are the most causal factors? The single most important causal factor the study identified was conscientiousness. This was a combination of persistence and not taking undue risks. Contributing to the phenomenon is that conscientious people tend to have more stable careers, more stable marriages, take better care of their health, and have a sense of purpose and career and life satisfaction. You might say longevity belongs to the more conscientious tortoise than to the carefree, risk-taking hare. Happiness appears to be a byproduct of successful living rather than a cause of longevity. It was interesting that traits such as exceptional optimism and cheerfulness, while especially helpful in some situations, negatively correlated with longevity, apparently due to less concern about and attention to risks. Divorce in childhood and in marriages was strongly negatively correlated with longevity. While being active throughout life is important, athleticism wasn't a factor in longevity. It is never wise to base all your conclusions on one study. The longevity study did, however, validate well with other longitudinal studies and with many short-term studies as well. Overall, it gives us a hopeful message 
that you don't have to be extraordinarily optimistic, cheerful, athletic, and popular to live a long, healthy life. Rather, having goals, persisting with those goals, being conscientious, having a network of friends, and helping others appears to be the key factors in health and longevity and happiness. You are listening to Ageless Lifestyles on webtalkradio.net and permanently archived on agelesslifestyles.com. For further information on my books, Defy Aging and 52 Baby Steps to Grow Young, my anti-aging hypnosis CDs, personal coaching, and my keynote and seminar services, just go to notaging.com or drbricky.com. That's D-R-B-R-I-C-K-E-Y.com. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions. Send them to radio at agelesslifestyles.com. This is your anti-aging psychologist, Dr. Michael Bricky, thanking you for joining us on our quest to live longer, healthier, and happier.